I've entitled this podcast, Israel, a Community of Radical Counterculture. Let me tell you what that's about. Make sure you're listening to the right lesson. Israel in the Old Testament was called by God to show the world what he is really like. She served as a kingdom, a royal priesthood, a light to the nations, a way that God's name would be known. And this wasn't just through the things that the Israelites said, uh, particularly the messages of the prophets, but through her lifestyle. In fact, the religion of Israel was radically different to the religion of all other nations, not just a little bit different, not just an improvement. If you want to find out how it was different, if you want to find out why it was so different, please listen to this podcast. A community of radical counterculture, like the church today, is in the world, yet not of it, set in the midst of the world, yet called to show the world God's character. And we're fortunate because so many discoveries have been made of ancient religions that scholars know exactly what the Egyptians thought. They're well familiar with the teachings about God and, or should I say, the gods in Babylon or Samaria. The beliefs of the Hittites, the faith of the Canaanites, the practices of all the surrounding nations like the Ammonites and the Edomites are really well known. In fact, you could compare uh, Israel not only to the surrounding nations, but to contemporary cultures worldwide. For example, in China or in the New World. And no matter how you cut it, no matter how you compare it, you're going to see that the faith of the ancient Jews was radically different. And I'm going to tell you 10 areas, maybe you can think of more, but 10 areas in which the faith of Israel, that is the teaching of the Old Testament, is not only head and shoulders above all other contenders, but uh, radically different. First, it was monotheistic. It believed in only one God, acknowledged only one God. Ancient religions were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Typically, the powers of nature became gods, like the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a river, and they worshipped Pharaoh as a god, and they had many others. Most ancient religions worshipped the sun. Uh, The moon was another god or goddess. Uh, The stars and so forth. The sea was frequently viewed as um, a god. So in the Old Testament, it's quite striking that there's only one god and that all the things that would have been normally considered to be god are portrayed as they are, that is, simply part of the creation. And occasionally you'll find references to some of the familiar myths, the myths that were circulating. You can learn more about that in my podcast on dragons. But these myths were not accepted. They were uh, rewritten, they were rejected, or they were co-opted. So this is uh, so unusual. We think, well, of course, they believed in their God, and, and probably the Egyptians had their God, and the Babylonians had their God. But no, that's not true. These peoples had multiple gods. And these gods, of course, were living in a certain degree of tension with each other. Only Judaism has the one God. A second area is the concept of God, closely related to the first. But again, the gods weren't the powers of nature, nor were they just superhumans or earthly rulers like Pharaoh considered to be God. 
The concept of God entails holiness. And holiness is not just a, a fact of him being more powerful than us. It's not that he's 10 times as strong or 100 times as smart. It's not just a matter of degree. He's so wholly above us, wholly, completely beyond us, transcending our world, that this concept of God is awesome, it's inspiring, it's mysterious, he's present in our world, and yet he's far above the worlds. The concept of God, in fact, is the only concept that makes sense to me. It's the only God worth worshiping. So in these two areas, monotheism and the concept of God, Israel is radically different to others. And just imagine how differently she would have lived and how much more of an impact she would have had if she had not continually slipped into idolatry. Ah, this is the third area. Because the ancient religions always had images of their deities uh, in their temples. There's always a statue. And we know that the Jews themselves frequently struggled with this, that they uh, bowed down to wood and stone, and the prophets frequently rebuked them. And yet, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle or the temple, there's no image of God. It's really just a dark place. There's the place where you might expect God to be if you think of the, the seat over the uh, Ark of the Covenant as perhaps a kind of throne. But there's no image of God. There's no God in there. In fact, in Genesis, it says that humans uh, display the image of God. Or you could say we are his image. We're his representatives on the earth. And so this is completely unexpected. In the Jewish temple, there's no statue. And it's not only that there's no idolatry, it's forbidden. That is unique in the ancient world. And I can only think of one other culture that even comes close, and that's in a, there's an Arabian culture called the Nabataeans. They had very simple images, but you know, whereas most people had elaborate images. But that's not even really that close because they still carved images of their deities. This is forbidden. Number four, it's a relational faith. So our religion is not about doing things, uh, measuring up or going through motions. And we don't get blessings by just fulfilling God's requirements. We cannot manipulate him, and he's not manipulating us. And so religion is not mechanical. It's not magical. It is relational. And that means that ethics are key. There's a vital connection between our faith and how we treat others. Uh, a Jew might say between Saturday and Sunday. A Christian might say between Sunday and Monday. And this is the faith, Judaism, that says, if you don't live the right way, your faith is worthless. God is concerned with the heart. And you should just pack it up, go home, don't even bother if this is not translating to your everyday life. And it's not just, okay, well, I'll avoid doing bad things. No, it's a positive interaction with others. Um, I preached a sermon in Houston yesterday. And if I boiled it down to a sentence, which you should be able to do with a sermon, it would be something like this. The rescued become rescuers. I based it on Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. But this is a theme that's found all over the Psalms and all over the Old Testament. That because we've been rescued as God's people, we look out for those who need rescue. 
the oppressed, uh, the widows, aliens, orphans, the needy, the rescued become rescuers. This is a relational faith. The Bible is not a book of rules. It's a book about relationships, first with God, then with each other. So Judaism is a highly relational faith. Can you see how different this is? And so far, there's really nothing here that doesn't apply to Christianity. The fifth area would be Sabbath. Now, of course, Paul and others, including all the early church, would say that we are not to follow a Sabbath. That's part of the Jewish covenant, along with keeping kosher and circumcision that uh, we're not bound by. But still, there's a principle that is vital. Humans are neither animals nor machines. And God's people are called to reject the world's crazed emphasis on production, production, production. When the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, I doubt that they got a weekend off. May well have been worked seven days a week. The Sabbath day is not a day to rest as in sleep in, though I have nothing against that personally. It's not a, a time of doing nothing. It's a time of giving, giving it a rest. That is taking a break from work from regular work. They still had other things to do, uh, but, but not their regular work. They had a day off. This is just so unusual. For example, in Babylon, there's no time off. The seventh day, it's true, uh, was different. It was considered as unlucky. If you're making a business deal, don't do it on the seventh day. But there's no evidence that that was a day off, and certainly none that, that the Egyptian taskmasters, taskmasters were were easygoing on, on the Hebrews on that day. Sabbath tells us that humans are not machines. We can't keep it up. It's not healthy. We're not animals. And we're not just cogs in a huge uh, uh, factory of you know, production. And our world tells us that what we're worth is our financial worth, or it's our, what we are able to bring to the corporation that we might work for. But God rejects this. It's not all about production. And I've been sharing this a lot this year. Now, you know this passage in Nehemiah where you have these merchants. Now, they're, they're Jews, I guess. And they're camped outside the city gates. They cannot wait for the gates to open so they can continue to make money. And Nehemiah says, get away from the gates. You know, they just couldn't wait for, they couldn't wait for church to be over, so to speak. Uh, they were so distracted. He says, you get out of here. I'm going to lay hands on you. You stay away. And that indignation that we would even think, oh, when will the Sabbath be over? You know, I want to get back to, uh, you know, being productive and having a real life. That is so antithetical to God's world and to reality. So Sabbath tells us that we are not machines, we're not animals, and it's not all about production. There are things that are more valuable, as we saw in the fourth quality, that is the relational faith. Okay, we're halfway through the list. Is this making sense? I hope so. Of course, I'm not hearing from you right now because you're just listening to a podcast. But each one of these I've chosen is an area that is significantly different from all other religions of the time. In fact, uh, these, these 10 areas are different from nearly all religions even today. Now, the next one would be that politics and priesthood are separate. Now, a faith clearly was supposed to affect policy. That is, kings were supposed to follow the Torah. The kings were supposed to read the law, the Torah, every day, Deuteronomy 17. But priests couldn't be kings, and kings couldn't be priests. God made sure of that 
by saying the kings must be descended from Judah, the priests from Levi. And any time in Judaism, uh, when priesthood and politics crossed over, for example, when Saul decided to offer the sacrifice because he was getting nervous, 1 Samuel 13. Uh, anytime like that, things go crazy. Same in Christianity. When faith and politics are all bound up together with the church state, starting in the 4th century A.D., things get really bad. And people who today hope that uh, governments will pass laws institutionalizing the principles of Christianity, I don't think they really know what they're asking for. This has been tried. This has been done. It was a total disaster. Priesthood, politics, separate. And anytime you combine the elements of that cocktail of, of faith and politics, it's, it's toxic. Number seven, worship and sex were separate. In ancient Judaism, uh, you had to be completely pure. Uh, there was no sex performed in the temple. Did you know that pagan religions often included ritual prostitution? That is, part of the worship would involve having sex with a temple prostitute, uh, and sometimes it would be a male prostitute. We even read about this in the Old Testament because sometimes this happened in Judaism itself. But uh, unlike the other nations, it was completely against their own law. Sex is set in the context of marriage. Premarital sex required one to marry the woman that he had slept with. Homosexuality, bestiality, incest, they're all forbidden. You know, in the promised land in Canaan, they worshiped Baal, Baal. And uh, some of the scriptures, the writings about Baal or about sex, sex with bulls, animal sex. Worship and sex are separate. In Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, he has uh, this, this idea that originally the heart of the Christian worship was this communion, which involved sex between a male and a female, representing the divine masculine and the divine feminine. Of course, this is really misguided. Uh, in my podcast on the gender of God, you'll see I take a position not that God is masculine, but that God is actually beyond sexuality. Perhaps you want to return to that another time. But separating worship and sex was unusual. When the priest went up on to the altar, up on the steps, they had to be covered. You know that some of the Egyptian priests practiced completely naked. In many of the ancient religions, nudity was, was part of it. In contrast, the Jewish priests had to be covered. There was modesty. One law for all. That's the eighth difference. In most of the world, the same standards that applied to commoners uh, and maybe servants, they would be even less well-treated, were not applicable to kings or to nobles. In the Old Testament, the law applies to everyone. It doesn't say, well, if you commit this breach of conduct or etiquette, this is the penalty if you're a slave. If you're um, a merchant, this happens to you. If you're a nobleman, that happens. If you're the king, well, then really nothing happens at all. It's not like that. There's one law for everyone. So favoritism is ruled out at the start. And of course, this is um, forbidden in Christianity as well. But think about that. There's just one standard of law for everyone. Persons are more valuable than property. 
when I look at the Babylonian laws uh, from even before the time of Judaism, though uh, they were still well-known and practiced in the time of the Old Covenant, we, we learn, I learn, that property is paramount. The first laws, the emphasis is put on laws about property, not people. It's not about taking care of people. It's about property. Um, in other words, using people but loving things instead of loving people and using things. Persons are more valuable than property. I guess that ties into number four, the relational faith. And finally, women are respected. You know, we may uh, skip right over this. In the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment. The fact that the mother is mentioned. In fact, in Leviticus, it says, honor your mother and your father. That is unusual to the extreme. I thought of inheritance law. If a man's sons don't inherit, his daughters inherit. If uh, there is a divorce, the woman must be taken care of, provided for, even gets a certificate, according to Deuteronomy 24. You might think, oh, well, that's just taking advantage of the women. No, it's not. It's guaranteeing that their former husband can't make a claim on them, take back property or children. It means that she can have a fresh start. It means that there's grace. I could go on and on, but we know that women are respected by Jesus. We know the apostle Paul served with women and was very influential with the upper-class women. They were respected well in the Old Testament. It gets even better in the New Testament, but I'm just comparing the Old Testament to the ancient world. Um, There's really nothing like it. Women are respected. And in these areas, one God, a God who's holy, who must not be approached through idolatry or through manipulation because it's a relational faith, rejecting the values of the world by taking a break, a Sabbath, separating priesthood and politics, separating worship and sex, upholding one law for all, where people are more important than property anyway, and that means that women are respected. Ah, Judaism is unique in its time. And with those principles lived out, that would explain why at many different times in Jewish history you see uh, Gentiles attracted to her God. From those who tag along during the Exodus all the way to those who um, follow the Jew going to worship in the prophetic vision of Zechariah chapter 8. Because Israel is called to live differently, radically differently, to reject culture where appropriate to show the light of God to the world. Now, are we supposed to be less committed as Christians? Are we to blend in with the world and accept its values uh, when the Old Testament people of God were not? Of course, this is nonsense. We too are called to be a community of radical counterculture. Check the notes that came with the podcast. Review this. Uh, Let it work on your conviction. I think this may even help you in some of your conversations evangelistically. And these are uh, ideals and ideas that will help us to give our best for the Lord. Not going through the motions, but understanding the importance of our relationship with him, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Thanks for listening.